Welcome to Liberty's Talk, the podcast of Liberty's Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberty's and the host of this podcast on which I talk with our writers and the larger Liberty Circle about whatever is on our minds. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by the brilliant Laura Kipnis to discuss her most recent essay for us entitled Gender a Malay, which is available for a limited time in front of our paywall on our website, so go over and check it out when you're done listening. This conversation, like the essay, is an attempt to make sense of many of the complicated themes related to gender that we all talk about all the time. Laura, thank you so much for coming on Liberty's Talk today. Hi, I'm happy to do it. Oh, wonderful. So your essay is called Gender, a Malay, and you inflicted this on yourself. You were the one who wanted to write about gender. So why, why did you pick this subject? What made you decide to do this? I had so much to say about it. And honestly, there are very few places where you can say the kinds of things you want on these subjects, which includes, you know, trans issues, feminism, the conflicts between trans activists and cis people and feminists. And, you know, these are such sensitive subjects um, I had written about this, I'd given a talk actually in um, California a few years ago before the pandemic and assumed that, you know, somebody would want to publish the talk because it covered some of these issues and no one would publish it. So, and I thought, you know, I was not saying anything horribly controversial and certainly not anti-trans, but I mean, people are terrified of these subjects by people. I mean, editors at, mm-hmm. you know, mainstream publications that I've published at before and that usually are happy to, you know, have a, a piece. Did they seem to think that like they were worried that they weren't going to have the expertise to make sure that they, it would be sensitive enough or something like that? I think that um, editors these days, and I, maybe I shouldn't even go down this path because, you know, I want to protect my <laughs> career or whatever remnants of we'll it. We'll edit yeah. it out later if you tell yeah. me. Yeah. I, you know, but it's, um, I, I mean, I think editors are just very wary about inciting uh, Twitter mobs to go after them or their writers, you know, even when it's, um, uh, you know, these are when it's about misunderstandings, let's say, or misreadings of, of something. So I think there's a kind of a move to, you know, be less controversial than people might have been five or 10 years ago. It's confusing because we talk about this subject. I mean, we, like the collective we, talk about this all the time. Right. I feel like, like I don't go, I can't remember the last day I went like 24 hours without talking about gender at some point. <laughs> That's funny. It's yeah, awful. <laughs> so you just answered my question for me. Thus, you know, I wanted to write about these issues. I, I did a, a a book thing the other night with David Shields, and he described us both as, or maybe me even more so, as running toward the danger. So mm-hmm. I guess that's, you know. Yeah, that's you, Laura, for sure. Running I, towards know, the danger. I'm trying to reform. Do you Did you used to be afraid and now you're not anymore? <laughs> You don't have a choice anymore. <laughs> That's funny. No, I think I honestly, I think I used to be less afraid. Uh, you know, I think before Twitter, everybody was less afraid. Oh, I don't. That's the before years that I don't know about those years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the old days. Yeah. So, okay, let's actually talk about, about let's gender. talk about the subject now and just not how we talk about the subject. So okay. 
okay, you set yourself the assignment of writing about gender, which is like such a colossal subject, partly because it's all we ever talk about. And also because it feels like we have, I feel like this anyway, like there's no, um, there's no organizing method. Like I have no idea how to organize my thoughts on gender, maybe because people are afraid to write about it. And so I have no model for how to do it. So how did you go about like tackling this beast? Well, I think uh, one reason it's hard to talk about it now is that the paradigms keep changing. And, you know, particularly in academia or on campus, if you go back 20 years, 25 years, like, you know, I'd have to think about the dates, you know, to where Judith Butler, a theorist uh, like Judith Butler reigned and the reigning paradigm was gender was socially constructed. And, you know, you couldn't say anything else than that or you would be run off campus. And now with um, the arrival of trans studies and trans activism, some of those older paradigms have been put into question. So that's one reason it's very hard to talk about. And nobody really also talks about the ways that the paradigms have changed. Um, It's sort of like you're just supposed to reconcile irreconcilable ideas in your mind. So that's for people who had some background in feminist and gender theory and, and also the earlier versions of queer theory, which I was, you know, somewhat a fellow traveler about are on because I'd written on I'd written a book on pornography. I'd written this kind of anti-normative book about love called Against Love. So, you know, I was always kind of participating, but maybe a bit from the margins, you know, because I wasn't really an acad, you know, an academic feminist or gender theorist or queer theorist per se, but I was always kind of dabbling in these subjects. So so that's one reason it's difficult or, you know, that the paradigms have shifted and people aren't really uh, wanting to talk about the ways that they've shifted or the contradictions between the old and the new paradigms. But also the, the, the conversations are just really kind of very antagonistic, uh, you know, if, at least if you're on social media at all. So one of the, you know, vantages that I wanted to bring to this is that I tend to look at things from a kind of maybe Marxist feminist or political economic background. And so I wasn't interested in talking just about um, like subjectivity or identity in terms of gender. You know, I was interested in talking about gender in the context of history and recent history, including economic history. So yeah, I start with like George Gilder and these supply side uh, economic people from the 70s and 80s. And I was reading for bizarre reasons, this book from 1977 by George Gilder called Sexual Suicide, which is, you know, a long anti-feminist track and about the ways that uh, feminism's attack on the gender binary was going to um, spell the death of Western civilization. And I say, yes, he was right. You know, it, um, right. He, he, he forecast correctly, but it was his crowd and their attacks on the family wage and the social safety net, you know, that sent women for the most part back into the labor force and um, had these kind of 
roiling social effects, in, including on what we see as the as as gender binary, like what there there were these you know supposed natural roles for for women and men. So you know all of that has completely transformed in the last fifty years, partly because of women's increasing financial independence and changes to the family structure, such that the male breadwinner family is not any longer to whatever extent it ever was in the majority. So, you know, I was trying to look at um, some of those changes and kind of the ways that those have brought about in a literal sense, the the end of what used to be called patriarchy. I mean, which isn't to say you don't still have male dom- dominance, which isn't to say you don't still have misogyny, but you know the the idea of the male as head of the family and determining the social roles for everybody. You know that has shifted. So there there have been these shifts, and I'm also interested in the ways that those have affected the kinds of the ways that people live and experience gender. So, you know, I think that there always were um, people who were renegades against binary gender who didn't fit into either the sexual regime of heterosexuality or the gender regime in which, you know, there were these distinct male and female roles in which, you know, which corresponded to biological sex. So I think that, you know, what the end of patriarchy means is that, whatever mechanisms previously like forced people into these kinds of rigid uh, roles have loosened sufficiently that, you know, people are finding their own ways through the gender system, you know, and I think that is why we have, you know, 70 different gender options on Facebook or why we do have um, these, uh, you know, new political categories um, having to do with, you know, trans or non-binary or genderqueer or whatever. Yeah. And then there's this strange thing that's happened. And I think, you, I mean, you, you give like specific examples of this. I think about this a lot. Women who are feminists and consider themselves feminists, it's a big part of their identity that they were they were on the left vanguard, are no longer on the vanguard anymore. And it seems as if they feel like like their crown has been taken from them. Like they have, they feel obsolete. And I, I, I wonder if this is what's going on with J.K. Rowling. Like she feels like women in her, her idea of women that she fits into neatly um, are, are under threat by these like snarling monsters at the edges of the map as you as you so well describe it. Do you think that there's a bit of that going on? I try to talk about, you know, Rowling and also Kathleen Stock, who's a feminist philosopher who takes similar sorts of positions. I mean, I think that they're making somewhat hysterical kinds of arguments about the in the danger to cis women, like in, you know, women's bathrooms or changing rooms, if trans women are allowed into these spaces. I mean, I think they're kind of bad faith arguments. And, you know, when you see those sort of bad faith arguments, you know, it's, I mean, there's a kind of conceptual incoherence to them, which I try to point out. And, um, you know, the way that danger is being used, um, you know, and, and I think, you know, not entirely legitimate ways. 
But I think that there actually are political differences that, you know, maybe people are not addressing between trans, uh, the trans community, feminists, and to some extent, um, gay culture too. And so I tried to talk about that. Um, you know, there, wait, can we, (laughs) can we do both of those? Those are kind of, those are a lot. That's a lot. So let's do, let's first do, let's first do why those activists, let's call them TERFs, even though that's not what they like to be called. Um, what I forget what they like to be called. What are they? Gender critical feminists. Gender critical feminists. Okay. Um, they're making bad faith arguments and the bad faith arguments get a lot of attention. I feel like JK Rowling is trending on Twitter like every other week. Sure. Um, so there, it makes a lot of people angry and it also makes a lot of people, it, it's like cathartic for a lot of people, whatever it is that she's offering. What do you think is animating these arguments since they're, it, it's a kind of sophistry? Yeah, it's a good question. And I'm just not sure I can answer it. Uh, I, I mean, you know, I think she's, wrong, obviously. I think she's sincere. Um, and I think also, you know, there is a kind of antagonism addressed to white, cis, middle-aged women, um, often under the auspices of trans activism. I mean, there is a, there is just a lot of, of antagonism there. And, you know, there is a kind of idea that feminist issues don't uh count anymore as as a politics and yeah you know yeah so i mean i think that women cis women i mean even at a time where abortion rights and reproductive freedom is under increasing assault and i mean this is a political issue that affects hundreds of millions of women um, you know, I, I think that that is being eclipsed. So as a feminist and as somebody concerned with reproductive rights, I actually see that. And there is a way that um, trans politics have kind of eclipsed reproductive rights, particularly as they pertain to cis women. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to... So- I- I have this conversation all the time. I was talking to somebody recently, like half, half of my life is like religious conservatives. And so I I like set myself up for these kinds of conversations, but I was saying something about, about sexism. And the person I was talking to was like, haven't, haven't, haven't you gotten enough? Like when will the women ever be satisfied? Like (laughs) how is there anything left for you guys to do? What more will you take from us? Yeah. Take from us. Yeah. Yeah. From us. And I thought, I think that this is, I felt despair for a moment. And I think maybe this is what's animating people like Rowling, even though I certainly, I don't channel it the way that she does. There is this feeling, even, even your essay made me a little bit uncomfortable while I was reading it for this reason. (laughs) Well, for so many reasons, but for this reason also, um, the idea that patriarchy is over well, I don't feel like it's over. What am I complaining about all the time if, if it's not over? Um, and I think that that makes people feel it, – it, 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 makes, it makes feminists feel like something ha- has been taken from them. And I think it's just a bad way of conceiving of the way that society develops and the way that um, progress happens. Like there are things that do get better and there are things that don't. And also just because – 
one group, just because patriarchy has deteriorated enough that people can experiment with gender in a way that they haven't before, doesn't mean that there aren't other things that are, that still have to be pushed back on. And there are things that are getting worse. If Roe is overturned this summer, that would be really bad. That's a thing that needs to be, you know, that's a thing that, that's a very serious thing that needs to be addressed. But I also wonder if this is, um, you know, there's this just, there's just this chasm between social media and real life. And I wonder if the way that the trans community hate that phrase, whatever, the subset of the people who are trans who are on Twitter um, manifests, makes people uncomfortable because they attack them. And then that makes them tense up and feel like they have to attack trans just generally. Yeah, and there's, I mean, that, you know, think, a false equivalence. I think that's a good point. And, you know, you don't want to talk about the trans community as if it is united. You know, one of the things I talk about is, you know, all the political differences, even within that community, if that's, you know, if community is the right word, like, for example, the high percentage of people, according to like a peer reviewed study that I cite who were Trump supporters in, in 2016. I mean, you know, not a majority, but it was, you know, I think it was, was it like 36% or so? A very yeah, high percentage. So, you know, the politics, I mean, there's a kind of assumption that the politics of trans activism is on the left. And I think that actually, you know, the politics is in favor of, I mean, obviously trans rights, but politically, you know, how that plays out in SKUs can be different. So part of why all of this gets complicated to talk about is also political alliances and allegiances are, are so much more unclear. I don't think we entirely, when we say left or right, or, you know, those that are often used as terms of attack, like all those leftists think X. And I'm thinking those people aren't left. You know, a lot of what's called the campus left, I think, has nothing to do with what I think of as, as leftism. But just to go back to the, the patriarchy thing, you know, I really was talking about, and again to say, there certainly is still misogyny. There certainly still is male dominance. Um, and, and including at levels that it's really going to count like state legislatures, you know, yeah. um, passing, uh, you know, abortion rights or, you know, passing against it. So, but, you know, so I was thinking, and to go back to people like Gilder about just these economic shifts, and because I am a bit of a vulgar Marxist and think about the ways that, you know, our gender identities are not just something subjective and chosen, but also are, are kind of experienced and taking place in these political and economic contexts. Yeah. And I think that people feel like, you know, when you say the the male breadwinner family is, is on the extinction watch list, mm, there is a kind of man who reads that and thinks like, okay, so feminism, ha- so fem- feminism has won. Sure. But it's not feminism that's won. Like, let's just, you know, and that's where I start out. And quoting even something like Francis Fukuyama, you know, it's post-industrial society and it's, you know, the fact that that capitalism no longer needs gender differentiation for the kinds of jobs that it wants to fill, namely information type jobs. So, you know, this feminist blaming 
is kind of the flip side of trans blaming, you know, of, of like Rowling and Stock. So, you know, that's the first place to push back. This wasn't voluntary. And most of the women that entered the workforce in the 70s weren't doing it for personal fulfillment. They were doing it because um, with the, you know, bashing of, of trade unions, which, with the decimation of the social safety nets, um, you know, the, you could not live on, on one paycheck anymore. And so that was the um, accomplishment of the right. It was, you know, Reaganomics and people like Gilder, you know, that pushed that through. You and I both live in like a, a very particular little pocket, you know? Yeah. But are, is most of the country thinking about trans rights in the way that we are? Well, they're, you know, certainly trying to legislate against them, um, you know, all over the country or particularly in the conservative enclaves. So, you know, back to the question, why did I want to write this thing? I mean, in some ways it was to try to reframe some of the uh, issues and debates. I mean, maybe not in ways that will be palatable to anyone, but partly, you know, in the story that I was telling um, feminists and trans activists are not as far apart as maybe they sometimes seem because, you know, in the ways that I think about it, the introduction of the birth control pill in 1960 and, you know, part of where I start in the essay is talking about um, hormones and the discovery of endocrinology, you know, making various kinds of gender possibilities available to more people from, you know, more efficient ways to prevent conception uh, and prevent ovulation in women, which is a gender change. It is to a large degree, you know, being trans in a certain way, changing your gender from the one that was assigned by biology, you know, which is that you're an instrument of reproduction to one which, you know, individual choice and consciousness kind of reshape nature. So, you know, we've been reshaping nature and reshaping uh, what we think of as gender for a long time. So, you know, I'm like trying to, as I said, kind of retell the story and reframe some of this stuff to make it maybe seem less um, like the trans issues of this moment are so, are so radical. You know, as I said, we've been reshaping gender for a century. Yeah, and I mean, certainly birth control affected far more people than any kind of transitioning yeah. does. But for some reason, people experience this as a threat. And I guess it makes more sense for people to have, for, you know, people 100 years ago, or whatever, 50 years ago, to experience a certain kind of feminism as a threat, even if it wasn't the driver for the social changes that they were seeing, they felt attacked by like 50% of the population. But Trans doesn't affect nearly as I mean, not nearly as many people as as something like birth control does. For this is a good example of something that I kind of find baffling along these lines, like the the national obsession with Leah Thomas. You following this a bit? Yeah. I don't understand. I. It's everywhere. People talk about it a lot. Um, it's not something that I would be like naturally interested in. So it's like something that I, I've. I keep stumbling over not on purpose. Um, and I just don't really understand. I don't get why people are so fascinated by this. It's like a pornographic obsession with this person. <laughs> this is the it's, swimmer, it, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The one at Penn. And it's like such a specific example of something that really is not scalable. Like the, like the, it's kind of what, it's what you say. It's this, like, this idea that there's like this, this monster in the closet, but it's not, this is not something that's going to affect many people. This, this student Leah Thomas at Penn um, transitioned during COVID. So I think there was like a year off of Penn swimming anyway. Their first year they competed on the male team and then they had gone through a year's worth of hormone therapies. So when they came back, um, she is now participating, competing on the, on the female swim team because the, the, the guidelines state that after one year of like consecutive hormone therapy, you, you have to compete on the other team. So it's just following whatever the guidelines were. And for some, like it, it just worked out in a very specific way. And this is the first time that that's ever happened. And people are really angry about this as if this proves something terrifying. Right. Like now everyone sees that like all somebody I saw somebody say recently, like imagine all of the records that will be taken from women by trans women in the years to come. It's like, what it, what is this fear mongering? It's such a strange impulse. <laughs> well, it's, you know, again, you know, like the, the one violent trans woman argument. I mean, it's kind of, uh, people who never cared about women's sports or women's swim teams are suddenly all over this issue. So it, you know, as a way of venting certain kinds of anxieties about these changes in gender. But, you know, I just to go back for a minute, I mean, it actually has been like 100 years that people have been taking hormones because and initially men were taking testosterone to enhance their masculinity or, you know, there were, it was thought that testosterone enhanced masculinity. You know, so we've always, I mean, not always, but at least for a century, been trying to alter nature in the relation between the biology that we were handed and our social roles or what we do with gender socially. So, you know, the swim thing or women's sports generally, like, I, I don't care. I, you know, I never thought sports yeah. was a quote unquote equal playing field. Um, you know, I, I mean, you know, look at performance enhancing drugs in, in every sport. So, you know, it's just, the people who care about this can figure out how to deal with it. I, I just kind of tune out. So when you decided to write about this, I guess I kind of imagined that this was like a tortured experience <laughs> when you were trying to figure out what you thought, but actually, am I right that you already knew what you thought and you're trying to give everybody else who seems to have this incredibly tortured relationship with the subject, the framework for understanding it. That's like less fraught. Well, that's a compliment. I mean, if I managed to do that, um, thanks. Um, I mean, I think I'm trying to also get at what I think of as bad arguments on on both sides or all sides, you know, and, and put a little, I don't know, how would you say, space in between some of those arguments. I mean, like Rowling's argument. But, you know, also the, um, I mean, I suppose 
the whole question of are trans women women, I, you know, I don't want to argue that on semantic grounds. I want to argue it on political grounds. You know, I don't care whether or not people use the label women and to get proprietary about that, I think is absurd. But I do think that there are political issues that natal women are dealing with, you know, like the reproductive stuff that we've been saddled with and that disadvantages women socially because of the social decisions that are made, like, you know, not subsidizing pregnancy and childcare while also expecting women to carry the burden of reproduction, you know, though, and, and child rearing. Um, I mean, you know, and, and the right keeps trying to strip women of natal women of, and, you know, trans men who get pregnant of um, subsidies while also moaning about the declining birth rates. You know, so there's just, I mean, you know, there's no end of hypocrisy to go around when it comes to gender. And to put all of these kind of in the same storyline, I guess, is part of what I was trying to do. And, you know, one of the reasons I was going back to talk about birth control pills and the social effects and the ways that, you know, back in like 1973, something like George Gilder is saying this is going to spell the end of Western civilization. And I say, yes, he was, he was right. You know, Western civilization has been profoundly affected by the, you know, kinds of choices that are offered to individuals now that weren't, but also, you know, the economic decisions that have been made about what does and doesn't get funding. Um, so, you know, anyway. But there yeah, seems... go on. No, sorry, what was... Were you about to say something? Uh, no, just just to say that, um, you know, I think, yeah, no, just to say that that was the project, I guess, it was to do some reframing and to try to undermine where I think bad arguments are, are holding sway. Okay, because there was something that I felt was missing from the essay, and maybe it was just, it. this is the thing that I think muddies the conversation and maybe it just doesn't figure for you because you don't care. But what I've, what I've tried, what I've, the charitable reading of the conversations that I've had with women who are afraid of what the, what trans women will do to women um, is that they seem, well, what they say is that they seem to think that this is going to like make, make us neglect um, the kind of political progress that needs to occur for women. But I, I, for all the reasons that you just said, I really just don't understand why that would be the case. There are, there are threats, um, that need to be dealt with, but they're not coming from the trans community. So I think that that's, I think that they say that and they probably think that it's true, but I think it's not true. What I, what I wonder is, is if they're, if they're animated by fear of people yelling at them and calling them transphobic, <laughs> And I think that that happens a lot. I mean, I, I that's the that is the horror story that I hear a lot that I think bothers them much more than the idea of being like assaulted by somebody in a the bathroom. They're afraid that like somebody just told me a story of um a parent whose child was in the boys' bathroom going to the bathroom and a person who looked like a girl walked into the bathroom and they the child, the son, um, like looked around and was like, am I in the wrong bathroom? No, there are urinals here. I'm not in the wrong bathroom. And he just kind of like zipped up and left. 
And then this person who had come into the bathroom with him started screaming at him, like on the playground saying, you're transphobic. You, you like looked afraid of me. You didn't, you didn't like say hello to me when I came into the bathroom and he started crying. I don't even know how old this person was, but, and then somebody else came over to him later and said like, don't worry, that happened to me four months ago. This person does this a lot. Don't sweat it. And it feels like that's what people are afraid of. They're afraid of like somebody yelling at them and telling them that they're not um, inclusive enough. And while I don't have a lot of sympathy for people who are like territorial about the, the word woman, which I think is kind of crazy, I do think that there are, there's way too much policing of conversation going on and people accusing people of being um, offensive. That's the, that's the magic word all the time. And that is a bad thing. And it shouldn't, it like the, um, the emotional impulse to become anti-trans because of that is apparently quite tempting. I think it's a mistake, but I wonder if that's really what's going on. Well, I think, you know, the problem that happens in these conversations is that the one example is taken as emblematic of, of a larger you know trend of something. So like, you know, the bathroom episode that you're talking about, I think, well, you know, unfortunately, there's always been bullying, you know, of kids by kids that happens in, in bathrooms or on playgrounds or whatever. So, you know, is this is this like does this example hold in some as, as a generalization? I mean, there is a problem, certainly, and it, I think probably does derive from online culture of mobbing at this moment. And, you know, the online mobs kind of coalescing and aligning to yell at some person who's made some, you know, what's seen as a conversational misstep. And, you know, we see that happening all the time and, you know, everybody hates it except that, the people who you know do it donate it. You know, I just published an essay in the Chronicle of Higher Education on snitch about snitching on campus and the way you know higher education has turned into this hotbed of craven snitches. And you know, I saw online, and I don't try to seek this stuff out, but on a leftist friend's Facebook post when he had shared the the post, a lot of people defending snitching. You know, because seeing it as some kind of tool of, of social justice. And, you know, and, and in favor of these harsh penalties for minor infractions, because, you know, supposedly that's how social change is going to come about. So, you know, and I think, Jesus, is that the kind of world anybody wants to live in? You know, I don't. But, you know, if you see what I'm saying, that this bathroom episode, I mean, if, you know, you could contextualize that as, oh, this is what gender is like now, or you could say, this is how kids have always been to other kids. You know, it's, it's, one has the choice of how to contextualize that kind of episode. Yeah. I mean, I think that that episode gets picked up and incorporated into a larger narrative of people just generally all over the place being bullied by a certain subset of the population that happens to be like disproportionately represented on places like Twitter. Um, and you know, it gets um, it gets vilified because it fits a certain narrative. Yeah, yeah. And I would like to see more pushback. I mean, certainly, you know, it's hard to stand up for yourself when somebody's yelling at you that you're transphobic or you're, you know, something or another um, that's seen as, uh, you know, a mark of, a, of, of terrible character. Um, but, yeah, so I think there does have to be more pushback, but it's it's tough in the moment. And 
I mean, look, I, I had a kind of like little scuffle on the subway the other day with somebody kind of like standing and blocking the door and I was trying to get past them. And she yelled at me. This was a, a white woman yelled at me. And we're both masked that I was privileged. And, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, well, you're privileged. You're blocking the door. But, you know, it's just like we <laughs> are in this moment of accusation hurling. I, I, maybe it was always like that. I don't know. I don't know. It's, I've noticed recently. I mean, I'm sure that like this has been true for a while, but I've, I've just kind of been chuckling to myself because it feels like everybody is invoking the authority of victimhood everywhere, like all over the place. And it's not, um, I think we're the only ones who don't do it because we're the only ones who are like elitist and don't pretend that we're not. But the, the amount of people who talk about, who rail against the media elite who are like card carrying <laughs> members of the media elite. And it's just like, who are you talking yeah, about? Yeah. Um, but I do see like, you know, people will, people use this a lot. They'll be like, you'll have somebody on, you know, some talk show and they'll talk about how they're, they're being silenced. And then there'll be like this onslaught on Twitter or there was just this piece. I hate that this has been largely about Twitter, but also you got to, you got to just talk about it. There was the piece in the, in, um, the New York times, the op-ed, there was one op-ed by a student about yes. um, free speech on campus. And did you yeah, read that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I wrote, and I did okay. see all the pushback online about it too, sure. The, the pushback, there were two things that really were upsetting about that whole episode. One was the language of the op-ed, which I think is just the way that everybody talks now. Like you can't justify writing anything unless you can make some argument for the fact that your First Amendment rights are being violated. Everybody uses that kind of language. Like I am under attack. I have, I don't have the freedoms that I'm owed in a free country, which you don't have to make those large claims in order to say that the university is not functioning, functioning healthily the way that it should. But nobody wants to just say something as undramatic as like, this is not healthy. They have to say, this is a violation of my human rights. Um, And I thought that that was a problem with the op-ed and then just like fully grown adults who are professors being so mean to this yeah. student. Yeah, I saw that. It was bizarre. It was. I completely agree. And it turns out that this student was going to become, I was going to have an internship or work for, I think it was Reason Magazine, The Libertarians. And, uh, you know, you do wonder if students like that are being pushed to the right or started out that way. Um but yeah, I thought the professors uh, ranting against this student, I thought, oh, well, it's, you know, kind of an accomplishment to have an, if you're an undergrad to get a, a, an op-ed published in the Times. No, they, they weren't having any of that. Yeah, they were really angry. And it seemed, I mean, what they said was, oh, your free speech is being violated. You're being published in the most prestigious pu- publication in the entire world. Like, how could you possibly complain about any wrong being done to you? And it's like, if you're a professor and your job, one of your jobs is to preside over the classroom and somebody's written an op-ed, which I think was, I thought the language was a little bit melodramatic, but if somebody's writing an op-ed about how this environment is not healthy, you think that somebody might think to themselves, hmm, I wonder if they've got a point. I wonder if the environment that I've created in my classrooms is not healthy. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that there were people who did that, but most of the people who were making noise about it. We're not doing that. And it was, that was really upsetting. It just, it felt like, you know, 
I feel like there is this enormous effort to shake prestige out of the academy. It's one of the ways that we're fighting, you know, the old traditional establishment is to make everything unprestigious. And that was one of the things that was going on on Twitter was just like professors doing their best to not look like they had any kind of gravitas or decor. <laughs> I mean, it does also make me think um, about my fellow professors, particularly in the humanities, that there is a kind of inculcation going on that, that certain ideas are allowable and certain kinds of questions are not. And, you know, I say this as somebody on the left who really just never wanted to try to inculcate social justice sort of ideas in my students. You know, I kind of want to hear what they have to say and think. And if I think their ideas are bad ideas, I'll push back or try to argue with them. But, you know, more to the goal of having them have better arguments, I guess, you know, and not just spout a lot of cliches, which, you know, they will tend to do. Um, but, you know, I think that they're, you know, and I don't want to sound like I'm sympathetic to a conservative line about leftist professors, but I definitely think that there is a kind of teaching of values as if they are facts. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the way that I think about it, I come from a very, whatever very is relative, but of a traditional religious background like from a modern Orthodox Jewish community where, I mean, the gender norms, the, nobody was pretending that they didn't exist. There was like literally a wall down the middle of the, of the you, were you, you have, you said something somewhere about, about like your parent, grandparents speaking Yiddish. Were you, did, I you, did you have any? No, I, I, I wrote in something, I think it was actually my uh, Love in the Time and Contagion book about hiding in the closet, reading their compendium of Yiddish humor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Okay, in so English, maybe you know. In English, they were, okay. yeah. Okay, well, that's the world that I come from. And, you know, nobody is pretending that they're not being um, very, very rigid about gender norms. And the thing that, like, gets my back up, not about, like, your essay didn't do this at all. It was like a brush of fresh air because I felt like what you were saying was, you know what, you want to experiment, just go for it. Do whatever the hell you want with your body. And that is emancipatory. And then there is, that is so different from the discourse around gender, which is so doctrinal. And it sounds like where I come from. It sound, it reminds me of the way that modern Orthodox Jews would talk about having to honor the differences between men and women, not like not overt things like um, the things that they would say out loud, but just the judgment that you would get if you did things that were too masculine as a woman, like the kinds of looks that you would get is analogous to the kinds of looks that you get if you use the wrong gender terms if you you know if you if you're not if you're not using language that demonstrates that you're well versed in um you know the progressive vernacular yeah and that, I, I think that yeah. there was a period of time in it i guess it was a period that i was maybe coming of age intellectually and it would be like post-sexual revolution and up through the beginnings of queer theory um, which would maybe be the 90s, 2000s, um, where there was this value put on exper experimentation and experimentalism and kind of not having all the answers and being anti-orthodoxy. And that was a kind of wonderful time, including on campus, where there was just really a kind of, I think, spirit of intellectual openness. I'm even on the left, the you know, feminist and queer left, believe it or not. And 
um, I miss that, you know, I don't want to sound like some old fogey, but the latest, I miss it. And I didn't even have it. <laughs> Sorry. But I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, I feel bad for me. Is what, I'm picking up on something that you're saying that there is a strain of authoritarianism in these kind of new supposedly progressive enclaves, um, whether it's, you know, the new versions of queer activism or trans activism or gender queerness. I mean, the, you know, this focus on language and missteps and mistakes and punishing mistakes, pronoun mistakes and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there is this kind of, and I was writing about this in the Snitches essay and maybe a bit less so in this one, but uh, in other places, you know, this, um, I called it a carceral mentality in the, in the snitches piece. But I mean, there's just been this like rollback or, you know, and veering toward what I think of as authoritarianism and orthodoxy. And, you know, that the orthodoxies and authoritarianism on the left are mirrored in the versions on the right. And, you know, that's what I find so appalling. And that's what I you know, would like to write about rather than, you know, oh, some trans woman is in the bathroom and somebody's upset, you know? Yeah. And I think that I think about this a lot and I don't really know how to articulate it, but I'm going to give it a go. I, I feel as if because everything is so legislated and we're supposed to have like a heuristic for how we behave in every social context, um, we really don't know how to stick up for ourselves when people don't know the script. And I think that the, does that make sense? I feel like this affects, I think this affects women a lot. Like they don't, because in like public persona, there's this in, in the context that they're used to, everybody is supposed to be honoring all of the social agreements that, you know, they're, they risk social appropriate if they don't do that. Um, but if you like match with somebody on Hinder that you've never met before, Tinder or Hinge, sorry, I called it Hinder. Mm -hmm. Um, then, and you're alone with them and you have no idea whether or not they know all the rules that you're supposed to honor ordinarily. Suddenly you have to advocate for yourself and it's a kind of freedom that we're not used to. And we don't know how to, we don't know how to, um, behave in a situation like that. Well, that's absolutely the case. And the last book I wrote, Unwanted Advances, Sexual Paranoia Comes to Campus, was really a lot about this. And, you know, it is about the lingering effects of female socialization and the, you know, ways that that does, like, ill-equip young women for hookup culture, where, you know, the kind of acquiescence or play nice and don't make a fuss kind of ethos, you know, of traditional femininity, like even into, you know, recent years, while, where we think, oh, women are, um, you know, liberated and, you know, all the old, you know, strictures have been like a part of history, you know, then you hear these horrible stories about, you know, young women out on dates with guys and, you know, getting strangled by them, you know, choking is very big and women not knowing how to because nobody's educated them. And because we're also still trained into a certain kind of acquiescence, you know, don't know what to say when somebody chokes you and you don't want somebody being a young man who's probably seen, you know, uh, an important video chokes you and you don't want to be choked. And so, you know, the horror stories are, kind of um, terrible. And, 
you know, so that was what I was trying to get at in that book that um, you've got kind of more sexual lever- liberation, let's say, quote unquote, liberation than you do female women's emancipation. And that just still is the case, I think. And I learned that from talking to my own students and, you know, reading a lot of accounts about, you know, what happens in these social situations that is oftentimes being called sexual assault now, or it's being called rape, where it's, you know, it is these oftentimes failure of communication between, in the heterosexual context, between young women and, and young men, and the men having more confidence or more, um, you know, I don't know, com- confidence to get what they want in a situation. Entitlement. Entitlement, yes, thank you privilege that you know it's tr- true you know then yeah well that's true that's absolutely true and and no means no is true but if you don't know how to say yeah. no then that's a big problem yeah and I think that this is like you know this is one of the things that I feel like there's there's this huge colossal unending co- conversation about um female empowerment and um it's hap- it is happening on like a macro level and has nothing to do with the actual individual human life that a woman lives. And it's very difficult to try and shift from like the empowering kind of language that you hear all the time and suddenly you're alone and you have no idea how to advocate for yourself. Yeah, all that's true. And I think, you know, back to the kind of free speech issues, it's not exactly this, but I think there are a lot of prohibitions about talking directly and honestly about these issues. I mean, I really encountered that after writing about it and writing Unwanted Advances. And, you know, a lot of it is coming from young women themselves. I mean, like, for example, if you talk about drinking on campus and the effects that that has on female agency, I mean, you will be told you know, angrily, victim-blaming, exactly. I mean, I've had students line up to tell me when I've given talks on campus that I'm blaming, you know, victims. I'm like, no, I'm actually, like, advocating for female agency. Yeah, and there's just no – there are these – there are just these trigger words that will get everybody's back Mm -hmm. up, and then the conversation is over. And so there's no way – like the only way that this happens and it happens incessantly this way is when you get three women alone together, like Mm -hmm. two or more women, like can't be more than five (laughs) alone together. And then I I said, I said recently to somebody, it was, it was a man. I said, you know, obviously when two or more women are alone together, they eventually, they will start talking about sexism the way that like Jews are just going to start talking about the Holocaust eventually. (laughs) And, and he was like, well, not all women, not all women think of themselves as feminists. And I was like, first of all, I mean, that's true. Not all women think of themselves as feminists, but, and maybe they won't call it sexism, but they're going to start talking about men. They'll be complaining, and, complaining about men. Yeah. Yeah. Usually it's complaining. It's always complaining. Yeah. And how to deal with it. I feel like I've been trying to figure out why I do this compulsively. And I think it's because I'm trying to figure out if anybody else has figured out how to deal with it. <laughs> Okay, Laura, we have strayed far enough from the subject of your essay. Thank you so much for this conversation. This was really fun. It was fun for me too. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed that conversation and you would like to read Laura's essay, head over to libertiesjournal.com. It is in front of the paywall. 
If you would like to read it when it is no longer in front of the paywall and you are a subscriber, it will be available to you. If you are not a subscriber, head over to libertiesjournal.com and correct that condition.